0: You're listening to the Samuel Andreev Podcast. Today I am speaking with four members of Ensemble Proton Bern about a project we are currently working on. The podcast was recorded on Saturday, June 19th, immediately following a recording session for my piece Sonata de Camera at the Radio Studio of Swiss Radio in Zurich. To know more about this project and to pre-order your copy, please check out our crowdfunding page. You'll find the link in the podcast description. On this episode, I spoke with Oboist Martin Blickenstorfer, cellist Jan-Philippe Chupa, pianist Coco Schwartz, and clarinetist Richard Haynes. Welcome to the Samuel of Podcast. Today, I'm doing a very special episode of the show with a group of friends that I've known for a really long time, and I'm just delighted that uh, everyone can be here. So, we have at the table Coco Schwartz, Jan-Philippe Chuppa, Richard Haynes, and Martin Blickenstorfer. All members of the Ensemble Proton Bern, and we are currently in Zurich making a new CD with the Ensemble. So this is, this is one hell of a project we're making. Um, I actually can't believe that we're here and that it, that it worked out and that this is, this is happening. It's, it's actually really like a dream. Um, what, uh, what has been for you the most uh, challenging part of this so far, of this program and this recording project?
1: Speaking from my perspective, um, I have to play lots of different kinds of clarinets in this project and so um, a few of them I actually uh, acquired especially for this project and had done up for this project uh, so we could produce the best possible recordings. And um, yeah, just the changing between each of these instruments, you know, each day of this recording I'm, I'm warming up on the next instrument the night before so that the, the embouchure and the lips um, have a chance to adjust and um that's been a lot of kind of extra work for me because you know i'm not just playing the um the normal gamut of clarinets but i'm also playing these exotic instruments like the a flat piccolo clarinet the clarinet de moria, and the basset horn
2: for me it's um definitely the uh, casio sk1 which is in, finally and one of the first sample consumer keyboards right and they are the, the keys are so small and um how you write sometimes it's quite uh, virtuous um, and difficult so to have all the different parts with the different fingerings on, on on these keys because you can have four polyphonic voices at the same time um is quite uh, quite a challenge and also then changing presets and uh, um sounds with um kind of um uh, changing the, the small things in between like when you have almost no time so this is uh, i always need to think very much in, in, in beforehand uh, what to do in the next bars and i had also to learn stuff like by heart to really know which keys to press uh, in a very fast um order yeah yeah it's complicated because it it's uh, you have to control five parameters when you're playing the,
0: the sk1 um it's actually given me an insight into what it's like to play synthesizers also, as opposed to the standard concert piano. Uh, you have to control a lot more parameters, in a sense. Now, on one level, you have less control over the sound in terms of the touch, but, um, but at the same time with the pedal and uh, and the different um, envelope changes and the different things you have to do on the instrument, it, it actually is quite subtle. And uh, But you play it so beautifully. I mean, you've done an amazing job with the, with the Casio. And actually, one of the things I... I had hoped when I wrote Verifications, Verification, was that um, it would be possible to treat something like the Casio SK1 as though it were a serious instrument on the same level as a grand piano. And I think you've brought out that quality. You've brought out this amazing subtlety um, on an instrument that wasn't really invented to be subtle.
2: What I really like, I mean, we played it already back in. 2012 something like this in the beginning when you after composing it and um back then we didn't have a volume pedal and um it's a huge difference now i think it's much more actually um organic in some ways it's more human uh, with the sounds and uh, how you can also integrate the sounds and mix it with all the the string instruments and um and um yeah um how <laughs> it's called uh, the, wind uh, the wind instruments, instruments sorry yeah. yes
0: well, what are the what are the differences for all of you between the recording project that we're doing now and the one we did at Radio France? <coughs> when we did moving. This was what six seven years ago. Yeah, it seems like a lifetime ago. What's changed since then for the ensemble? You guys personally?
1: Mm-hmm. I think back in two thousand fifteen, uh, some of us were still relatively new to the ensemble. Um, I came on the scene about two thousand thirteen. Jan Philippe as well, I believe. And so um, the the sort of the Coming together of everybody in the ensemble sort of was was only just getting going at that time, and um, the pieces that we recorded back then, um, La Ponde du Profil and uh, Le Concert de la Semaine, or how, what's it called again? Ah, long, <laughs> Apropos. That's a long Apropos time. Del- Apropos, you can go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Apropos du
0: concert de la semaine dernière.
1: That's the one. Yeah, th- <laughs> they're, they're not pieces that were written for the the core Proton lineup, so um, you know it was it was still very much in a way, kind of an, uh, the feeling of an ad hoc ensemble, but now the ensemble's been together for such a long time in in um, a constant kind of lineup of these eight players that we, we have this feeling of, yes, we are Ensemble Proton, we play like this, this is how it works, and um, uh, the all the pieces on this C D are um of course not for the core lineup specifically, but most of the people in the ensemble are playing in these pieces as well. So it feels much less like like this ad hoc ensemble experience and much more like Ensemble Proton is playing Samuel Andreev's music.
3: For me, it's interesting to see your development, Samuel. Um just the first CD was just sort of my first encounter with you and now we had like this distance in our development, but also in yours. And it's uh, incredible to see what how you changed or your writing has changed since that time. And even clearer, it becomes because we have also pieces like from 2012 on this new CD that will um, come, up, come out now. And there you really see the different phases of your life or basically of, of your approach. And um, that's what I enjoy a lot like having a real insight now. Whereas the f- six or seven years ago, it was just a, like a, like a picture. And now we have a real three dimensional feeling for your music, I feel.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, the the last CD had some really early things on it. I and mean, we did LP. <laughs> <if laughs>
3: yeah. that moving
4: web- was an early piece as well. Was, yeah. But
2: PLP was like, you were around what, 20 or something? 22. Two right. or so. I mean, the, that's a, a huge difference. It's almost two decades, right? Yeah. So, but it's PLP
4: amazing. like a piece for two pianos and a uh, would You have to yeah.
0: explain what a loopphone is.
4: A lup, lupophone, <laughs> yeah. I, actually, it's, it's we, we assume yeah, that I, everybody it's knows. It's now, now to talk about the loopphone since uh, in, in this uh, production, I, I play all the other oboes from piccolo, like uh, piccolo oboe, oboe, oh. or more English Horn. and the lupophone would be the bass oboe uh, so that was for the last cd production um, and yeah it's a newly developed developed um, bass oboe came out in 2010 and i'm a lucky player of the first model that uh, was a uh, um, yeah you could buy uh yeah yeah the plp piece is actually the reason why we we two know each other mm-hmm. i was uh, desperately looking for a a composer who is, is uh, writing for low oboe instruments, uh, like the other brand, uh, like, um, well, what, what did you, uh, yeah, the heckle, heckle yeah, yeah. And uh, I got your name, uh, wrote you and you, you sent me this piece. I said, oh, it's like, uh, the, the original title of the piece was, uh, PHP. Yeah. Uh, so piano hecklephone piano and i guess the title has some other uh references as well but uh words <laughs> uh, yeah but and then you agreed to uh arrange it for PLP, like piano Lupophone, piano uh yeah so that gave me the chance uh find uh, like to to have a um, uh piece to, to show the instrument because then back then uh, it was uh uh yeah i just started to play it and wanted to uh yeah have the chance to get it on the stage sound uh, bring the sound to the public
1: <laughs> yeah I think it's interesting that um uh, speaking about the lucraphone. From the very beginning, the lupophone and the contraforte have both been key elements or key instruments in the identity of Ensemble Proton. However, in this project, they're completely absent. Um, I wanted to ask you, Sam, do you have an aversion to <laughs> to either the contrabassoon or the contraforte? Or is it sort of just happenstance that they just happen not to be in this project? It's, uh,
0: that's a complicated question. So the, the, the contraforte is a fascinating instrument. So this is a kind of... Should we use the word "improved" contrabassoon? It's the, the contrabassoon has some acoustic deficiencies uh, as an instrument. I mean, it's not very powerful. It's not doesn't project very well. And uh, bassoonists, for centuries, I'm sure, have been complaining about how it's very, very difficult to make it project. So was it Wolf that uh, made this? Yeah, uh, this uh, this time. Impro- in Apple Time, yeah, that made this uh, new model of, uh, of, of a type of contrabassoon that, that is incredibly powerful and uh, has a wider range and is just kind of an improved version of the instrument all around. Why have I not written for it? Um, I don't have a good reason for that. I was the, the first thing that comes to mind is it would probably not be practical to write for the contraforte, but then again, I'm writing for clarinet de <laughs> yeah, so That argument doesn't really hold up, does it? Um, I think it just didn't really fit in with the sound conception I had for these particular pieces. Uh, I already have a, a huge loopophone piece, also, and um, I just didn't hear it for these these pieces somehow. I, I don't know how to explain that. I think when I write a piece, the first thing I think about is the instrumentation, and the musical ideas actually flow out of the instruments for me. So when I knew I would be writing for oboe d'amore and, uh, and clarinet d'amore in the Sonata de Camera. It, it conditioned the entire sonic world of the of the piece, for sure. I mean, I imagine the music differently if I'm using those instruments. So it's, it's never just a matter of, oh, it's a clarinet with a slightly different range or it's, it's a, you know, in a slightly different sound. No, it's, it, it, it's a whole world. It's, it's an expressive world. It has also different historical connotations as well. And so all of those things feed into the music, most definitely. The Lupophone and Contraforte, I, I'm sure I'll eventually use them. I just didn't, uh, didn't, for whatever reason, didn't have them in mind for this this project. Um, what's cool, though, is on this new album that we're doing, three out of the four pieces were specifically written for Proton. And so in comparison with the last CD, I think it's it's a wonderful portrait because everybody on the ensemble get, has a moment to shine. I mean, there are there are difficult solos for every single member of the group. And i really don't think you can say that there's one particular instrument that's featured more than the others i think it's really quite uh you know it's it's it really shows what
3: the ensemble can do
4: mm-hmm.
3: that's what i wanted to say i play on one cello not seven clarinets <laughs> or a, a toy piano or a toy casio uh, but still i even on the cello uh, i find your writing very um utopic as utopic as on the casio in a way so it never feels like You just accept the limits of the instrument as it would be comfortable or whatever, but it's always a challenge, even if it's not a solo, or even if it doesn't sound virtuosic at all, but (laughs) it can be the simplest phrase, but you just, yeah, Mm -hmm. it it has a touch of the impossible Mm -hmm. that you wish. I don't know whether you want this or whether you search for this or whether it's just, whether you don't care about that, just... Do you have a a feeling for difficulty, for technical difficulty? Because we're talking so much about this now. Not technical difficulty
0: specifically, but when I was an oboe student, I remember, um, and I was working on the the Mozart oboe concerto, which Martin will realize, there's always a level beyond that you can get to as a player with pieces like that, uh, with those Mozart concertos, with the bassoon concerto, the clarinet concerto, and uh, the piano concertos, obviously. um, uh, you never seem to quite reach a point where you think, okay, I've, I've got this piece under my fingers, and at least that was my experience. Um, so it's not so much a question of virtuosity in the traditional sense, but of um, hopefully, I mean, the, the hope would be that the music has enough depth to it that when you revisit it a few years later, you can find something new in it and find it maybe a new approach. That's that's what I would hope. I would never set out to write difficult music. In fact, if anything... Uh, I've tried very hard to make it as simple as I can within the limits of my style. I think if you compare these new pieces with some of the things on the CD, which were sometimes, I think, needlessly difficult, I hope that the difficulty is a little bit more directly connected to the musicality and not so much a result of, uh, let's say, errors in calibration, where it, it, it could have been written in a way that would have facilitated things.
2: I'm wondering actually because um, Verification is, the, let's say, the, the oldest piece in that uh, album. Um, how do you feel about that when you re listen to it again and be working on it again and you, you are totally in it again, right? After 10 years. Uh, what does it make with you? What do you feel? What do, you, do you connect with yourself with it or is it too far away?
0: It's not too far away. I definitely recognize myself in that piece. Um, I'm very proud of Verifications. Um, partly because it was one of the first opportunities I had to write a piece exactly the way I wanted to write it without um, having to I wouldn't say compromise because I I don't think I exactly compromised on earlier things but it was was really the chance to fulfill a dream of what a piece could be like and I knew that I would be writing for Proton and I knew that uh, the members of the ensemble were not only willing but actually enthusiastic about the prospect of playing all of these exotic instruments and that was just a tremendous, uh, tremendously exciting thing to know that I would be working with people that would find that exciting, rather than it being kind of a oh god, I have to play this instrument, you know. <laughs> Which, uh, to be perfectly frank, I, I had a lot of experiences like that in the past, where I would write for even you know vaguely non-standard instruments, and you'd get that kind of reaction because it would be like, well, it's extra work and. I have to find one, you know, an instrument that uh, that works reasonably well, and it's going to be weeks of effort for me to do this. And a lot of people just don't want to do that.
1: Well, to be fair, in symphony orchestras, people get paid more to play, you know, the auxiliary instruments um, because it's uh, beyond the scope of their job description. And so, um, I think it's always interesting from probably all of our perspectives. We're always um, Going beyond the limits and bounds of our own kind of instrumental world, be it the piano or the cello or the oboe or the clarinet, and um, you know whether it's schlepping around extra gear or needing to learn um, complete instruments that are completely new, and that's just part and parcel of what we do, and we we're not in the position to demand more money for that, but it's just part of the our artistic practice in a way. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess it's, that kind of attitude is rare. It's extremely rare. I mean, <laughs> I, I had the good fortune of
0: uh, of being um, of, of having a year at the Casa de Velázquez in Spain. It's it's an artist, artistic residency, and and uh, uh, that that uh, that I was very fortunate to be awarded after I finished my studies in Paris. And everybody told me when when I was about to go there with my wife, they said, uh, "Don't get used to it because it's really nice there, and you're only going to be there for a year." Just be careful you don't get used to it because the, the, when you go back to you know normal life, it's going to be difficult. I often feel that way when I'm working with Proton. It's like, okay, this is amazing. <laughs> I can't get used to this because because these sorts of working conditions are uh, non-existent, basically. I, I mean, I'm very fortunate to work with other ensembles as well, but in each of which has their own particularity. But for the, these particular uh, pieces, I think um, you know, the conditions are just really perfect. So I'm. Deeply grateful that uh, you know all of you, every member of the ensemble uh, is uh, is doing such an incredible job on this. It's it's amazing to me, but I, I also have to be realistic. I know that um, some of these pieces, like verifications, is not going to get done. Uh, you know, every week. It's just it's part uh, it's part of writing that way. You have to accept that. When it works out, when you have a really fantastic team to play pieces like that, it's you know I couldn't be couldn't possibly be happier. But you know, it's gonna. It's going to limit the number
1: of performances that pieces like that can get. You said something in the uh, uh, pre-concert talk on Tuesday in Bern, um, something about the future. Oh. Your, your response to one of Doris Lance's questions was, um, if, if we think far enough ahead into the future... Um, oh, do you remember what that was? It was about Mars, I think. It was about Mars, yeah. Oh, that's the question. <laughs> I don't remember what the question was.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't either, actually. It was a, I'm sure it was a brilliant question. It was a
1: very roundabout way of answering her question.
0: Yeah, 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 I know. Um, uh, yeah, it had to do with the fact that probably, it, I mean, it, I don't to have a crystal ball, obviously, but it, it appears likely that within 10 to 15 years, human beings will be walking on Mars. Uh, everything seems to be pointing in that direction. Many, many people working very hard on the problem of getting people to Mars. I think about stuff like that every day. I think about the fact that we can, uh, we can, you know, on if you if, if you follow the Twitter account of these different rovers that they have on Mars, you can, you can in real time, view these mind-bending photographs, uh, high high dimension, uh photographs of canyons on Mars and uh, and these alien landscapes, and I just can't believe that that's our reality. I absolutely can't believe it. And, and as an artist, that um, that makes me think very carefully about now what is our response to something like that to living in this kind of a reality where something that's 100 million kilometers away is now within our reach if you take the the approach that i'm going to i'm going to do things that i already know work and that i already know can be done and can be done reasonably well in a reasonable time frame then you end up making very conservative choices about what you're going to do when you take the possibility of failure out of the equation you're left with nothing but conservative choices so all of my pieces are designed in such a way that they could fail uh, they could f- fail artistically they could be impossible to bring off they could be impossible to play and i have to accept that possibility so i think part of it is um making a slightly different calculation you know trying to do things that very well could not work out but then using that as kind of additional leverage to do things that would be impossible otherwise, and when it, when it does work, then it's just amazing.
1: I think a similar thing goes for the um, the, the attitude to to instruments these days because. Uh Thanks to the way the, the music world works now, the, um, the sort of the streamlining and the perf- perf- perfectionism, uh, when it comes to making, I'm going to talk about wind instruments is that, okay, we're going to put all our money and all of our research into making the best possible B flat A bass and E flat clarinets because they're the instruments that will, p- people will buy in order to get secure jobs in orchestras. And so that means that very, very little research and money goes into making other instruments, which m- may be just as Interesting, or if not more interesting. Um, and that's, I think that's where this kind of um risk versus success calculation comes into play. That you can, um, you can take these wonderfully exotic instruments and um have incredible musical results, and um, you're taking a risk as a composer by actually writing for them, but at the end of the day, it's um it It's enriching the music world, it's enriching your own work and it's enriching the the work of uh, the musicians that surround you and those are the musicians obviously that are investing their time and playing your music. Um, in a way, I think I feel like it's sort of an investment for the future as well, um, not just staying in the tried and tested, safe kind of territory of um, of standard very, very common instruments. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, if I could briefly indulge in a, a tiny amount of hubris, why does the hecklephone still exist? Why is it still being made? The only reason is because Richard Strauss wrote those operas. Uh, they would not exist otherwise. There's a couple of very minor pieces written for it, but uh, you have to hope that ideally there's a three-way partnership between the instrument builders, the performers, and the composers. And all all three of those uh, points on the, on that triangle have to be participating equally in order for an instrument to be viable. Mm. If there's no repertoire, there's nothing to play. If the players don't invest the time into it uh, and their musicality and their expertise into into, um, helping to develop the instruments, then then they don't exist. And uh, so I hope that in a very small way I can contribute something uh, in that sense of hopefully showing that some of these obscure instruments are actually very viable and have lots of musical potential. Um, Like the Musette, for example. Ah. So, (laughs) wouldn't you say?
1: (laughs) Um, Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um. Does the Musette appear in the Symphony Orchestra? I've never, I mean, not not like,
4: nothing like uh, Strauss. I've never heard about that. I mean, I've never played a piece with a Musette in an orchestra. Could be, but it's more, most, more like in, in big ensemble pieces. I heard it in Amsterdam with, uh, uh, Asko Schoenberg or, uh, uh, Ernest Trombau, my, my former teacher in Amsterdam. He plays, um, the musette as well as the uh, piccolo hecklephone. Uh, it's a rare instrument. I know from you that this is like only three left existing instruments, two from, uh, two of them, uh, uh, sitting in a museum so, yeah, and sure. uh, one is pit- played by Ernest. Um, yes, I I mean, when I, when I, we talk about like what, what, um, Haeckel did some centuries ago, it, it was insane. I mean, the, the, the variety and, uh, of, of, of clarinet instruments or, or double reed instruments, it, it went so, I mean, they did things we, we cannot imagine today. And, um, yeah, somehow, some, some somehow it narrowed down to like the mainstream instrument. And, uh, yeah, for, for us, like we, 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 we like to search. We like to combine, bring, bring new things. Um, um and then uh, it is a, it is a challenge, but it's, uh, really worth it to, to take it. Um, Yeah, you speaking of the musette. um, There are two different kinds. Uh, French model is in uh, F, and uh, Italian model I play from uh, Fratelli Patricola is uh, in uh, E flat. Um, Really well-made instrument. Though really difficult to play still, uh, intonation, fingering, tone colors, but tone colors, but it's, um, it's, it's something we, we all used to. And, uh, it's, it's kind of this kind of, uh, this research and dive into, like, can I actually do what is written there? So in your piece, like the, the, the cantata, uh, where you, uh put the, um uh wrote the, a section for um, oboe musette in the seventh movement as well. Um you go up to the written high A and I was uh sounding high C s- sounding high C yeah. and C four yeah. uh and I was like oh <laughs> because the score came uh yeah there was not not so much time left. And I was like oh on Oboe, I know but uh but i found a fingering it went and uh yeah but that's only one uh, example for for many uh, like like yeah combination tone, tone colors and uh, combination in in like verification uh we have the combination of uh, piccolo a flat uh, clarinet which is like this the highest uh, ever
1: built clarinet the smallest and uh, highest or yeah it's yeah. the it's the highest piccolo clarinet in <laughs> relatively uncommon use um, I have heard of an um, Ottavino clarinet in B-flat, but I, I haven't seen a picture online. I can't find any very, many, very much information about you it. I just
4: someone on the hunt now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but, but yeah. the combination of, of these uh, three, like, really high
4: instruments, sometimes, it's, yeah, we, we have so distinctive new color combinations. Our recording engineer is
3: very, very, uh, uh, <laughs> well, He's afraid about tomorrow because it will be this piece with the piccolo and the two well, <laughs> high winds <well, laughs> and should, the Casio. He should be. He should yeah, be, yeah. yeah. It, it's
2: he dangerous. Should, He's it, really know, afraid. That, it's, there's, really, there's, there times it's really, it's really loud. Though. I mean, it's, it's really from <laughs> the, the loudest possible to the almost not, not um, audible. Yeah. audible yeah? It's another, a very extreme another piece. Another
3: utopic yeah. image of a piece. So yeah. How, how, do, how yeah. would you ever, I mean, in concert I can imagine, but even on the CD, this will be a piece where everybody will be turning up and down yeah. the volume. And there's imagine. also some
2: <laughs> yeah. dynamic range which you should actually have on a CD yeah, yeah. on more or yeah, yeah, less. And in radio, it's is. even smaller. So And vinyl also. On vinyl also. Yeah. It, yeah. If not that they jump right <laughs> the, the
1: needle. I mean,
0: that's <laughs> a job see. for the mastering engineer. Yeah. They're going to have okay. their hands full.
1: <laughs> what I find really interesting about Verification is that it's such an extreme piece. <laughs> um, but still using relatively traditional means. And um, that's something I marvel about with your music anyway, in, in, in general, Sam, that you, you use v- relatively traditional means to, to gain such an amazing, um, extraordinarily um, broad palette of sounds, uh, without resorting to, as far as I know, any extended techniques whatsoever. Yeah.
3: Or the first, like if I look on the page of the score, I would say that's like super traditional music mm. and conservative music. But then, with like when like I work and when I realize it, it's the opposite. That's really yeah, amazing.
0: Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, my my hope is that the the radicality of the music doesn't come through the uh, the playing techniques. I think that's it. If if it is uh, if it is radical in a certain sense, then it, it comes hopefully from through something else I think there's a tendency sometimes to confuse novel playing techniques with um, with novelty in terms of the meaning of the music or or what the music is attempting to do sometimes those two things overlap sometimes you do get pieces like in, in Lachenmann, the second string quartet for example where there's almost no traditional sounds in that piece and it's a very it's a fascinating sound world it's a fascinating piece and it's extremely new sounding on every dimension so there are pieces like that but then there are also pieces that use every extended technique in the book but that have nothing particularly uh, new to say so I think that those are it's it's two independent questions you can write music using traditional means that uh, that does not sound traditional and you can use music write music using extremely radical means that that sounds I think relatively standard within a sort of new music context so but um, there again, I have to point out the the, the difference, though. Like the, the the work that you've all done um, since the premiere of Verifications is is just mind blowing. Because it sounds like a piece of music now. <laughs> I mean, it did then too. But um, there were so many technical challenges involved in playing Verifications when we did it the first time. It was crazy, mm. like the intonation between the wind instruments, for example. <laughs> and now it's like. I was amazed when we rehearsed it with Luigi. Like, that wasn't even an issue. You know, st- stuff that we had to actually work note by note by note <laughs> ten years ago. And now we can actually focus on playing the music. It's amazing. So, we should mention, we're working with a new conductor on this project, or at least new for for Proton. Yen-Philippe, uh, how's your experience been working with Luigi so far?
3: Yeah, I, I like really what he's very proud of. is his not like mathematical approach to music to contemporary music so that's like his belief i would say that he believes that contemporary music should not be played square and mathematically precise but always from musical phrases in the horizontal line That's just basically that's his primary belief and i found this really um convincing and relatively uh uncommon for contemporary Mm. music conductors that's true frankly because very often we measure the quality of a conductor in how uh, clear precise stable um also elegant uh, uh, she or he can conduct but this quality of phrasing and colors and so uh, comes short sometimes because of the complexities of contemporary music
2: So um, you can say like I feel in everything he shows or says is a a deep musical intention behind and it doesn't come from just something he sees on the score or he thinks this should be whatever together or whatever, but he just tries to to feel the music behind in, in his way of course and there we also start sometimes discussing things which we love as Proton. Uh, to be involved on the same level with a conductor. And um, it has been that way since a long time. Um, When we try really to be, we are all musicians and we don't just follow what somebody says, but we try to really do music together and find things, make compromises together in some ways that we can have a a clear musical idea.
3: It's about real communication and I enjoyed this a lot also with Luigi. A real communication between each of us and uh, his opinion. So, yeah.
0: it, it's always a risk, isn't it? I mean, to bring someone in to a situation like this. And Proton's a, a very uh, particular kind of ecosystem. You all know each other. You've known each other for a long time. You've done so many projects together. And I mean, I think you can hear that also in the recordings. That this is a, a real ensemble. This is not like a pickup group that gets comes together a couple of times a year to to play. But this is like a, a real ensemble. And bringing someone new into a situation like that is is a risk, of course. Yeah. And uh,
3: it was your wish to have Luigi as a conductor, right? Yeah. So be- we trusted well, yeah. you in the end.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd already worked with Luigi, and I, I had a sense of how he worked. And um, it's it's on on some levels, it's unconventional. I mean, how what his approach is to to contemporary music, but. I figured you know this could this could work really well, you know the, the combination of of the ensemble and in his approach and I have to say i'm i I couldn't be happier with the results so far i mean I think these recordings are spectacular uh, amazing i i I really can't wait to share them with everybody who's listening to this podcast because the the work that this ensemble has been done has been doing over the past two weeks i literally i cannot believe it the experience
1: with Luigi so far has been really special and um uh very positive, what Luigi manages to do with us, I find is he's managed to transform the way we play, so most um conductors who are kind of in the contemporary music circuit, they come in and they they keep time as clearly as possible, like you said, you know with the most clarity and um that's all well and good, and they let the ensemble play how they normally play mm-hmm. That's all well and good. I mean, if the ensemble's a great ensemble well, there's nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. but um Luigi's come in and really transformed the way we play music, and I would go as so far to say that um, he's probably given us all, to some extent, new tools um, to use when we play any kind of music, be it contemporary or otherwise. And I think that's a really, um, a really great thing if a conductor can can leave that kind of lasting image on a group. And um, even if we say never work together again, or you know, in another five years or whatever, then um, at least that person has made a difference. And I think that's a really that's one of Luigi's strong points. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um, I mean, I think a lot of aspects of this project are unconventional, and uh, we've we've made some unconventional choices about uh, how we would do this, who we would work with, and. Um, Um, One of the things that actually ties into that is the question of how it should be released and this is something that we've all been discussing over the past couple of weeks is what should we do because as all of you know the the world of recorded music has changed dramatically not just I mean forget the last 20 years like in the last two or three years even and As anyone who's watching this will probably already know, it's extremely complicated to do projects like this, to to finance them, to get them released, to get them any kind of public attention. And the question that I think we've all been wondering is, you know, should we put this out on a label? Should we release it independently? Should we do a vinyl? Should we do CD? Should we do streaming? Um, Coco, you've got a record label, I understand. Yeah. Yeah, so what, what do you think about this? Like, where are we now with recorded music, with this kind of a project? What can we do to get it out there and what's the
2: because it's not obvious anymore what the best approach is really <laughs> the thing is just the CD is dead right um of course you still have listeners you still have people who buy cds after concert but in general it's dead. um it will never have a big comeback in my opinion um vinyl is something which is interesting because it has another way another crowd also who who listens to vinyl it's in the whole scene and the people come back to that yes but the biggest impact probably you still have with the whole streaming things online because that's where also young people are and listening you know and of course what you want to say with new music or contemporary music there are not so many listeners in general if you compare with what what young people listens to so my question is always how to get to people who perhaps even wouldn't listen in the first place to things like this. So where, where to, to catch attention or even have, um, people be interested in things they don't even know that it exists, you know, because, um, already when you see how many people come to concerts, it's a so small percentage, uh, in the contemporary music. And then in listening, it's, it's probably the same. Um, so I still think there are ways of dealing with it. But mainly, yeah, it happens online and it happens perhaps still with vinyl, vinyl right, um, in some ways. But I wouldn't know about uh, contemporary scene and vinyl much. Mm-hmm. That's so the other point, right? Well, <laughs> this so is... the
3: kind of music is maybe, uh, I did two or three vinyl releases in the last two years. Oh, really? But uh, it's always different kind of music. Uh, so I would say this... Uh, this dynamic uh, range that your music has, and the quality, for my taste, needs something really like high fidelity, so like certainly a digital format and maybe something even beyond CD quality, or I don't know, mm-hmm. that, that's my personal
2: mm-hmm. view. That's yeah. what I also think. Like nowadays, you have many platforms where people really go because the quality is much better than a CD. And mm-hmm. I think nowadays to make only the quality of a CD is not worth. Mm -hmm. Like it should be higher because they're audio field people and they are interested in recordings like that because, um, I mean, we have an amazing sound engineer and to put that on on a disc, I mean, it's it's a product on its own, right? Like it's an art on its own. So if somebody really is into that and can listen it with proper like gear, um, that's amazing. How do you like to listen to music? Um, myself, actually, I, <laughs> I don't listen much to music because I play so much. I, I rather produce, um, in different fields, like electronic than also classical, of course, but that's when I listen. So I listen when I create. Um, and I don't go so much like taking time on my own to just listen. That's quite rarely, actually. <laughs> but if I do, then I really have, I mean, I have the Stax uh, headphones, which are really cool. Like, um, I have other kind of, um, you know, in the studio with monitors and stuff like that, which I love to sit and listen. So, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, what, the question for me is, um, what would be the ideal format for a release like this? I mean, I love the idea of, of doing vinyl, and that's something that I'm thinking about very carefully. And what we could do, in fact, is a um, is a is a double release, vinyl and CD. Streaming, I'm not completely convinced about, I have to say, because for me as a, as a composer, I'm very aware of the problems with that uh, uh, the, approach. The I mean, and copyright the, is an issue. The fact that it's impossible, it, it's basically impossible to monetize. Mm-hmm. That's a huge problem. It's not something that you can sweep under the rug. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very big problem because if recordings are impossible to monetize, then we can't make recordings. I mean, the whole thing is just going to collapse. So vinyl is one possible solution to that because the vinyl industry is huge now. I mean, in comparison to where it was even a couple of years ago, it's now a 2 billion euro industry in Europe alone, which is gigantic. It's much bigger than the CD market. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. Um, so I'd really like to do a vinyl release for this. We'll see. We're, we're looking at some different uh, solutions and that would
2: be amazing i would be happy to have that on vinyl but i still i mean perhaps you know more about um, act- an, an actual like audience on the vinyl uh, with this kind of music because i know a lot of like other kind of music you know experimental electronic uh, the whole mm-hmm. techno thing i mean uh, dj stuff it's, it's amazing uh, and i'm not sure if what you just said that the huge market is rather in that um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not my huge market, but it's a huge market. <laughs> yeah, I I think that
0: it would it would definitely be a risk because it uh, this is not the sort of music that typically gets released on vinyl. So it would be again, it would be it would be a risk, and it would be an unusual approach to take. But I think it's a risk that could possibly that could possibly work out.
1: Mm, that's and probably it, exactly you know, why you need to do it. Yeah, uh-huh.
0: I, I think so. I think so. I mean, we can also do a CD,
1: and the album booklet is uh, it can be really big. Yeah, you know, you've got a lot more room than a than a than a CD booklet. And another small thing,
2: I don't have a CD player anymore, so I wouldn't be able to listen without CDs.
0: Yeah, I know, I know, I know. A lot of people don't have CDs, uh, CD players, since not that everybody has a, a a turntable either. But I don't know what to do.
4: I can't wait for the moment I put the first Proton vinyl on my turntable yeah I, in my home is the same i have a uh, turntable and no cd dock and more so yeah cds are, are yeah it's kind of nice
3: giveaway <laughs> i enjoy cds still you have But I'm old fashioned. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't
3: i would not i would like to what will i do with all my cds no i need a cd player <laughs> <laughs> even if it's not so many, but they're so dear to me, and mm-hmm. I yeah. just need the. Sometimes I just want this particular thing. Of course, I could find it online, probably, but exactly. it's people. just yeah. parts of my life on these cities. Yeah, so I mean, that's mean, why I gave away
4: my, my, my of my youth. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah they are still. Yeah.
3: Well. What, um,
4: I don't know. I mean, if you have the direction for, for our other exactly. question, but we didn't talk about your cantata that much. And, um, compared to the other pieces, it, um, uh, made a deep impact on me. I, I mean, I, I, I think it's a really good piece. <laughs> um, I, I don't have a question about it, but, um, um how do you think, like, um, yeah, I mean, compared to the, uh, sonata da camera, you wrote like on the body, proton body, like, uh, like instrumentation. And then with this, uh, sonata da camera, you, uh, chose, uh, to include, um, two more instruments, like the mandolin and the viola, yeah. as well as a soprano, <laughs> uh, that thinks, um, the text. Um, you mean the cantata has the extra instruments? Yeah. yeah. Yes, 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 yes. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, com- comparing these two pieces and for me, they're really different in a good way. Um, but there's a kind of a huge development, uh, uh, went through <laughs> your uh, compositional approach. Um, so I'm, um, yeah. I just uh, I just realized it. I don't know. What do you think about this? Uh, like if you put these two pieces next to each other, that, that you especially wrote for like uh, proton and uh, proton uh, plus, let's say.
0: But <laughs> well, there's two things. I mean, when I write a piece, i'm I'm writing for somebody. I'm writing for an ensemble or for a soloist, and that's always in my mind. when i'm writing when I was writing the cantata every note I was thinking, oh, Yen-Philippe's gonna play this, or, or Richie's gonna play this, or, you know, like, or Vera's gonna play this line on the harp. And and I, I know all of you, of course. And so there's something magical about being able to do that because I know all of your personalities and uh, and the way you approach your instruments. And uh, and that is is in every aspect of those pieces. The other side to it is that the cantata, the new piece, so this was a, a, a premiere that we just did last Tuesday brand new piece that I worked on for a year. So that was on poems by a British poet who I admire very much called Jeremy Halvard Prynne. And I think a lot of, I've heard something similar from a lot of artists that when you write something in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, what would so-and-so have thought of this piece? What would, you know, name a composer or name somebody from the past, what would would they have thought of this? And in this specific case, I knew I was writing Something that would attempt to amplify the world of the poems and try to bring them into some kind of a, a musical dimension and i didn't want to disappoint the poet that was that was in my mind the whole time i thought i, I want I want to like this piece wouldn't that be great if he thought it was, thought it was all right and I'm always thinking, I hope the ensemble likes it, I hope the poet likes it, and then there's if i'm totally honest, there's like two or three people whose opinion uh, really would matter in terms of either just people I know um, outside, you know, not speaking about the ensemble, but but uh, maybe other composers or, or or friends, where I would really want to know what they thought of the piece, and, and I think I'm always thinking about that. This new piece, I I, don't, I guess it sounds different than the others, but I can't really get into the reasons for why that is because i don't know
3: and it's just also a different form i mean it's a cantata yeah, and the other yeah, thing well, is a, a chamber concerto basically or something, sure. or something yeah well that's just well there's a... by the setup it has to sound differently
0: there's an acoustic difference which is that so we should explain that proton has an unusual lineup right you've got two strings piano harp four winds and Acoustically speaking, any composer will know that it's very challenging to write for ensembles with a smaller number of strings than winds. It's like the, the Schoenberg uh, Chamber, uh, Chamber Symphony is extremely hard to play because the strings are naturally drowned out by the winds. So when I was writing the the uh, sonata de camera because i've worked with proton a bunch of times i know what the acoustic challenges are writing for an ensemble like that especially if you add a piano into the mix because there's there's just a it's not the same level of uh of what would you say not power but uh uh, instrumental weight maybe is is heterogeneous in this ensemble so the sonata de camera was purposely conceived of as a, a set of tableaus, a series of sections that featured different combinations of instruments all the time. And there are actually relatively few tuttis in that piece. Whereas with the cantata, I wanted more of a homogenous kind of a group sound a lot of the time, which is why I needed the viola and the, and the mandolin to amplify the harp and the keyboard and also to round out the string section a little bit. So I think just that alone just dramatically changed the sound of the
1: piece. And then you've got the added sort of the 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 form already from the the poems that um, already kind of give you these uh, very concise um, compartments in which to uh, inject your music, um, or is is that the case, or is that uh, a misconception on my part? Sorry, can you repeat the question? Yeah. Um, so the the form of the poetry already gives you a a structure of sorts. Um, into which you write your music. And um, you know, the the sonata by comparison are these sort of, as you said, these these uh, stretched out tableaus that are sort of attached to one another, the whole piece is a taka, whereas the cantata is are these seven succinct movements. Um for me, the the cantata has something of the concision of um Short pieces by Webern or Berg, mm. for example, and the sonata has something much more kind of um, elegiac or lyrical, um, akin perhaps more to a, a Richard Strauss tone poem. Mm. That might be going a bit too far, but um, uh, th- that seems to be to be uh, to me to be the major difference between the two pieces. Or do you see it like that?
0: Yeah. Well, the, the time frame is vastly different in the two pieces for mm. sure, and. Uh, I think with Martin, we were saying um, with the Sonata de Camila that we would do a long piece, or we would do a, b- a big piece for Proton. And uh, so I had to think of that piece in a totally different way than how I normally write, because I wanted it to be a one movement span of at least twenty twenty five minutes. So, so I had more room to stretch out in that piece and and try out different combinations. And uh, whereas the Cantata is very is very each movement i think is very very focused and each movement also tries to be its own world and that's the reflection of the poems because it was very it's just a very intuitive thing i would read the poems and uh, get these flashes uh, these ideas of what a musical amplification of those poems might sound like so it really does come from that but one of the things i've tried to do generally is to make it so that each piece is its own world and that's uh, there's a quote by Mahler who said that a symphony is a world, a symphony is a, is a whole world. And a, a piece can be a world too, and it can be a unique world. It can be populated with musical ideas that um, only are found in that particular combination, in that particular expressive world, in that, in that piece. That's my greatest joy in composing, is to try to create a new world. So, which also has the side effect of slowing my production down. <laughs> so I don't I don't write tons of pieces these days. But
3: so God needed seven days. How long do you need for one world?
1: <laughs>
3: Lately, it seems like I need about six months to a year. Yeah,
0: which I, can, I can't even believe that saying it. It seems like a crazy amount of time, but that's what it takes. Okay, well maybe we should wrap this up. But um,
3: thanks for the talk, Sam.
0: Yeah, thanks for agreeing to do this, and looking forward to tomorrow verifications
3: last day yeah it was a long long like project (laughs) rehearsals concert four days in the studio
1: yeah it's been yeah it's been been quite a long run yeah tough but um it's it's also been great because the music's really good and um it's just been you know on the one side it's a joy to play the music but on the other hand you know you really want to do a good job it's lots of work you have to be prepared and stuff so um Yeah, but I think it's the right kind of balance between um, the musical reward and the musical work you put into it. Okay,
0: great.